Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the Sports United podcast. Uh, we have a very special guest uh, to give us so much insight in to probably what is the most criticized uh, officiating uh, in any sport, I think, unless there's some controversy in cricket that I'm not aware of. Um, but we have a very special guest, uh, David, thank you so much for joining us, uh, to talk about your, uh, your interesting career. Well, thanks for having me, Justin. Thanks for having me, Charles. I appreciate it. And, uh, Charles is here. uh, he's, uh, hooked us up. Uh, you know, it, it pays to have friends in, uh, high places. Uh, so, as we get started, uh, David, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, well, I reside in Scottsdale, Arizona, where I umpire baseball full-time. Um, you know, just a, a normal guy. Obviously, umpiring is just like playing. If you're not at the highest level, you're not going to make the big bucks. So, for the time being, until I make it, I'm a collegiate baseball umpire. So for the time being, until I make it at the highest Division One level, I, I still bartend full-time, too. So, you know, whenever you see an umpire in the field, if he's not at the highest level, he probably has a regular job, too. So a little bit about me. It's a great way to uh, to kind of summarize, because uh, all, all anyone sees really is the uh, yeah, the highest level, or um, I guess another example in Canada, you see a lot of the the junior refs, uh, and they're not NHL because normally that's when the NHL season is going on. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're uh, they're they made it. So uh, it takes a long time um, to uh, to make it. It's not just uh, you know out of high school, eighteen. Here you go. It uh, takes a lot of work. Uh, so. How did you get into uh, umpiring or how did you choose, or I guess did baseball choose you as a, uh, as a favorite pastime? Okay. Well, I'm Canadian born, but uh, you could say American bred. I moved to the States when I was eight. So moving from hockey as a main sport to baseball in Arizona, uh, baseball became part of my life. Uh, 20, 2001 was the year that the Arizona Diamondbacks won the World Series. So that was the year that I moved to Arizona. So it was a great year as a young boy to find a new sport and just so happen to have your team win. Like, it's, it was such an eye-opener for the sport and to find love. And, you know, I, I happened to not make it too far as a player, but had a couple friends that officiated and gave me a shot to work literally games one day just to make some extra money. How it all starts. You pretty much got hooked there, right? Oh, yeah. Now, were the Little League parents really harsh on you, or were they polite? Or So, it really comes down to what demographic or region that you're in as a referee, or in my case, a baseball umpire. Um, if you go to a higher income area, you know, the parents are, are more critical on your every action and your every call on their individual son or daughter playing, not collectively as a team necessarily. So you might you might get a little more outspoken words on a player to player basis on your officiating skills. But for the most part, 
everyone everyone's there to make sure everyone has a good time. Do things ever really get testy at that young of an age? Like, do the parents ever really get on you as hard as you know you see in maybe the the top AAA minor leagues or, or major league baseball and then in the show? Do the parents ever really? Because we all hear the stories here in Canada, and we've seen it all at least once about how bad parents could be on refs at a hockey game just for mm-hmm. ten and twelve year olds. Can it be that bad in the states? Yeah, um, I don't really think you see as many tabloids as actually happens. I think it happens on a, a nightly basis where a referee or, or an official gets followed to their car. You know, um, when you're at the lower levels, you don't always have a locker room. So it's not like hockey where it's an indoor arena where there's locker rooms to dress. Uh, in baseball, and especially in the desert, you, you come dressed as a player, as a, as a teenager or a child. Your, your parents dress you at home. They bring you to the field. So the referees, we get dressed in the parking lot, the same parking lot that the parents come to unload and repack their cars to leave. So as a human, it's only it's only normal to want to express yourself. But, you know, sometimes behaviors get the best. I think that's been a big when uh, when we're that when we're that close, you know, there's no buffer. The game just ended. You, you, you think this guy that you don't know did something on purpose. The next thing you know, you see him getting undressed. It's easy to spit some venom. And so. I think that's been a big uh, kind of push uh, in the last few years. And uh, I mean, the, the pandemic has really, you know, highlighted a lot of that in any industry. But, um, you know, being having played sports since I was four uh, and as you get older, you kind of see, you know, the abuse of officials and referees and umpires. And uh, I know with social media, it's made it that much more easier, uh, not just for, you know, parents to videotape and be like, Oh, see how wrong, but to advocate for the abuse that happens on uh, these officials, especially at levels where it's little league or, you know, you ate soccer or, you know, where a lot of these entry uh, level people are coming from. Cause you got to start at the bottom, no matter what your age, whether you're, you know, 16 and it's your first job making a little bit of money and you're, you know, this is your sideline referee uh, for, you know, U7 soccer uh, or, you know, little league uh, umpiring. It doesn't matter that, oh, you know, you, you know, you finished high school or you're in grade nine, they start you off at the the bottom. They don't just uh, put you up there by age because you need experience and to understand. And these poor kids, not just humans, but like, to have a, you know, a mother or a father uh, parental figure yelling at someone who's still in high school or just learning the ropes of you know, understanding officiating and all of this acting like it's game seven of the World Series you know, is just ridiculous. And I'm so happy that finally there are sites and you know, social media, things are getting shared and it's actually having consequences. It's not just oh, you shared and uh, people are going to talk about it. Real consequences are happening to these people who try to intimidate or actually physically attack referees and umpires, although it still happens, like you just said, on a day-to-day basis. At least more eyes are getting drawn to it, which hopefully will lead to something more positive uh, down the road. Um, So 
your playing career, uh, uh, you know, me and Charles went through the same thing. Our playing careers did not end up in glory and getting paid thousands of dollars. Um, and uh, I know for myself, uh, which I have uh, a little bit later on, uh, in you get into the world of officiating because you want to help succeed the sport and you want to help make it as fair as possible and help people have the best time possible, no matter the level or, uh, you know, competitiveness. Uh, so when you, uh, switched, like you said, you had a few friends, uh, how long did it take for you to get that bug to be like, like, you know, Oh, I can stay this close to the game and really, you know, make an impact. Was it like after the first game, did it take a little while to get into it? That's, um, that's the question that I go over with myself every day is when did I get serious about it? Um, I think it was about a month. My main friend who got me in had a deal with me. His, his son was his main umpire partner for this local league. And his son took a position with a local uh, package care, package currying company. And he couldn't make the game times. So the deal was I would work as a field umpire. They call it the base umpire for a whole month. And if I still liked it, then I can use the money that I made as a base umpire to purchase my own set of gear for to be a plate umpire. So I think when I made my first $1,000 purchase for gear and clothing, I realized whether I liked it or not, I was in it. So <laughs> that's probably think- the first the first real purchase of umpire equipment that was my own was when it, it flipped the switch because as a, as a child playing it was always my parents providing me with my gear and my clothing and and my Powerade and my snacks in between games and the things that I took for granted of as a as a child and now I get to give back in a different way but now here's the most important do some umpire moms bring orange slices for the umpires after the game or is it that, that it doesn't translate. So my mom is my number one umpire fan. And she didn't bring me orange slices, but she brought me support. That's just as good. Uh, that, as at least the one person in the stands wasn't yelling at you in a bad way. Yeah, she made the mistake letting people know who her son was, though. Oy. That's, how, Oy that's how you know parents are really proud. They don't. They don't get the, the, why is everyone yelling at you? Oh, no. <laughs> My mom loves it. She said she used to go to Jerry Park as a young girl with her, with her father, my late grandfather. So, so she, she lives vicariously her baseball career through mine or her baseball love through my new career. You started, you started umpiring baseball, David, and you're getting practice, like in-game practice and honing your skills there as any other player does when they're playing the game, they're honing it through the game itself. But in between games or in between seasons, where do you go and how do you get practice seeing people throw the pitches and calling in the strike zone and just knowing what you need to do as an umpire? How, how do you go about, how does that go about happening? Cause as a player, you know, whether it be football for quarterbacks, throwing footballs thousands of times in the off season, baseball players taking extra swings, you and I shooting hockey pucks against your parents' garage when we were kids, uh, when, I, when we would see each other in Montreal or here in Ottawa. Um, we, players hone their skills doing that. How does an official go about honing their skills? 
Okay, so first you have to gauge of what level of baseball you're officiating. So if you are a lower level baseball umpire in Arizona, baseball is year round. So you can hone your skills by continually working those lower level games where, you know, hopefully everyone understands it's about development and not only the skills, but also the umpiring skills. So when those kids get better, there's also lower ages of the people who don't participate to play anymore, but can fill ranks as, you know, solid members of our, of our baseball community and other aspects, you know, not just players, but scorekeepers, referees, officials, fans who don't have any families who come out to support teams. Um, so from my perspective, as a junior college baseball umpire, so I'm in like the lower level ranks of college umpiring. The way I hone my skills is the higher level colleges in their off season will hire lower level college guys to come work their inner squad scrimmages games that they, the games that they know won't look the same if there's not a warm blooded umpire there, but a game that they don't need to yell at an umpire. So they're willing to have a little less consistent strike zone Maybe a couple bang-bang plays aren't officiated the same as they would be in their level, but they're okay with it because they can, they can pay a less pay, a less fee for a lower-level umpire, maybe like me. I work the junior colleges, so maybe I get chosen by a state university to come out during the week to look at some pitches. Um, I made friends with the Padres, so even though I'm not a minor league baseball umpire, uh, I see most of my pitches at a professional level throughout the year at the Padres facility in, in Peoria, their spring training site. So they go year round, they go year round. So some couple guys are lucky to get year round access to pitches. So that's what I was just going to say, cause you're based in Arizona, which in, in for certain sports, it's a dream because you don't have to deal with snow or, you know, the mm-hmm. changing of the season. So you can, be outside 365 days and, uh, you know, get as much practice in. I'm like, hey, it's Canada. 100 Fahrenheit right now. That is true. Yes. It, it, you do have to deal with the heat and the, the, and it's a dry heat. So it's, it's not fun. Do you find at a certain point, uh, both with players, although it, players are, you know, you could have all sorts of levels, but uh, with umpiring, um, you know, do you find, player or even umpires that you know little league level uh that they're kind of content staying there um and yeah you know being at the little league does that kind of light the fire under some people and be like oh like you know if i really work at this i can make this my full-time career as long as you you know how tough it's going to be uh but like do you do you see the light often or do you see people kind of be like oh yeah this is fun and like everyone in like 1000 person would be like, you know, that this could be something. Yeah. The only, the only way I can put it in regards to anything else would be with any big corporation. If you worked among peers and throughout the year, your company wants to send you out of town for some possible training with that same corporation, but with different States or different provinces, or maybe even in the same big town, different regions of your company, they might take the top two or three guys out of that specific store number or region and to maybe get some higher training to maybe bring it back to the group. 
So you'll see those guys who are actively chosen consistently to go do that kind of training are going to be the ones that have that light bulb where the higher supervisors can see it. And you can see it starts with your uniform and your presentation. You know, even if it's your side job, you know, officiating is, um, I don't want to say you're the lawyer because you're not, I don't want to say you're the judge because you're not, but you're, you're both and you're not both at the same time as an umpire referee. You know, there's a rule book to use and, but the rules are already interpreted for us as referees or umpires. You know, it's not, uh, it's not up to us to like, say, I think this rule means this. So you can really see it in the people who take themselves out of officiating and then just let the game play. The ones who come dressed and prepared, you can, you really see, and maybe one out, of, one out of every 50 umpires, you can see that there's a light to move forward, but just because you don't have progression going forward, doesn't mean you're not a great established person for where you need to be. I think there's always people in companies that are perfect where they are who don't get upset when they get passed up on promotions, people that are there for 15, 20 years who just love their job and do it well. And people love them too. You know, you see people at your local grocery stores that are there for 10 years and they love it and you love seeing them. And that's the same thing as a, a little league umpire. He might not ever aspire to be higher than a little league umpire, but you might put me as a college umpire in that little league game. And they might tell me I don't belong there. They say, you, you're terrible, you're bad, you should never umpire a game this level. And it's funny, but at the same time, it's not, because that makes you take a look in the mirror sometimes, especially me, that maybe I should just zip my mouth and let the game go and just be a nobody and not be seen and not be heard and maybe do a little less extravagant strike call tonight or maybe, you know, not be seen for once. And maybe if we do that a little more often, maybe the issues will stop too. So getting into, um, you, you were talking about how you get into umpiring and how, you know, people, there's a light to move forward, light, light to go up. And be, being in Arizona, it's a year-round sport. Um, how do you guys, do you guys have like a set sort of channel to network or, or is it pretty much up to the individual person how they network themselves to keep getting those jobs? And then I, and I'm, I'm umpiring in different leagues and different cities, different towns, different districts. Is, is there like a set form of, okay, apply here, apply there, or is it pretty much up to the individual person? It's up to each individual person to learn how to network themselves as a, as a commodity to a league or a commodity to what we call assigners, which I think people have, uh, referees and umpires in every sport have an assigner. It's just someone who tells them where to go. And it's also the person that tells them when they're going to get paid. And depending on the league, those assigners have different roles when it comes to retaining umpires or training umpires. And, you know, for me, you know, I got into a very small rec league, you know, it wasn't, com it wasn't competitive. So there were no umpires there that were competitively looking to move up. So if I would have just stayed with that friends group of officiating, I probably never would have moved up higher. I took it upon myself to research on Google umpire training. Oh, up popped this umpire. It's called professional umpire school. And it was in Florida. 
you know, and my parents always wanted me to continue my college career that I never continued and decided to give them a pitch. I said, Hey, I want to do this trade school in Florida. It's six weeks or excuse me. It's five weeks long. It's about five grand. And you get how to become a, a professional umpire. And they yield, they yield about two to 300 students a year. And little did I know is that if you graduate in the top 2%, you get a job in minor league baseball. So even though I didn't graduate in the top 2%, I graduated in a margin that they saw some possible growth. And then they ended up giving me networking skills amongst the community I already lived in that I didn't know that was, you know, it was high school baseball. It was different little leagues, different organized travel baseball. So it's, it's, a, it's all in one's, oneself and also the organization that they're in and what training they offer. I was going to say, I know there are, uh, you know, certain schools or, uh, yeah, you know, they'll pay, uh, depending on what level, they'll, to send you to camps and all that to be evaluated. Um, so are there uh, lots of schools like the one you did or uh, is like, you know, the one in Florida, like the Harvard of getting into to umpiring because uh, uh, definitely down in the States, I can imagine it could be, you know, a million dollar business uh, just on the umpiring side alone um, up here in Canada would be, you know, the equivalent of hockey refereeing, but mm-hmm. they kind of want you to work your way up from the bottom to, you know, at least to, you know, junior A, double A, triple mm-hmm. A, and then junior. So uh, it kind of sounds like that here, but for, for schooling, uh, would they prefer you to, have schooling uh, versus just practical or both or so when it comes to the baseball rule book you really you're not going to learn it unless you study it Uh, I can't speak on any other sports but I have friends that always try to get me in football and you know I always I don't like to do something unless I'm the best and I think that's just a natural thing in all of us not only as men or women just as beings I'm just wanting to be good at what we do. And I don't think I could take on a second rule book at the capacity that I have knowledge of my baseball rule book. So it really comes down to rule book knowledge and then not necessarily even the number of games you have under you. It's really the number of messed up situations that you've covered in training. When it comes to training, we do a lot of simulated training where it looks like a baseball game. You have all these players, but the person, there's no hitter. The batter is uh, an umpire instructor with a fungo bat. He decides where he's going to hit the ball because they're making the most messed up play that they can make. So, you know, practice makes perfect. And sometimes the practice off the field, you know, I can compare to hockey People who just watch hockey, they think it's tough. They don't know what off-season, off-ice training is. You know, running up sand hills, I couldn't do it. And umpire training is the same thing. You know, you see an umpire run down to third base twice a game. But when we're training for four hours, we're doing it every 30 seconds. So when it does happen twice a game, we don't miss that rotation. And then, so it it really comes down to personalized training. And it's split between professional baseball, collegiate baseball, 
and then high school baseball in the States. So if you're not a professional umpire, you're never going to make it right into college baseball. But if you happen to get a professional job, which you can get a professional job, never umpiring before, because you just go to this college. And if you graduate at a higher level, it puts you right at the lowest level of minor league baseball, which is rookie ball. You know, they have the Gulf Coast League in Florida and then the Arizona Summer League. And they stick you with the lowest level of professional baseball players with the lowest level of professional baseball umpires. And their goal is to hopefully have a track of these young umpires and players. You know, the players obviously go at a faster or, you know, faster slope to the big leagues. And the umpires, it takes about 12 years, about a decade to get to the big leagues. But without professional experience, you don't get into college baseball. So if you're not a professional umpire, you got to go to training seminars. So you got to find your local high school. So you go into your state and you do their two training seminars a year. You hope you umpire good enough to get playoffs. And if you get seen working playoffs, then you go back to the training camp again as a playoff umpire. And you just re keep repeating that until you, you break into the next level. So probably just the same way as you go from single letters to double letters to triple letters to juniors in hockey in Canada, it would probably be the same as high school baseball split between junior varsity and varsity, usually grade nine and 10 or the lower levels and grade grades uh, 11 and 12 in the States or the varsity level. And then you just move up when you can. That sounds now we very know, much. Uh, <laughs> sorry, Justin, go ahead. I was going to say that sounds very much when I, uh, uh, before I came in, uh, I guess, an adult, uh, adult, adult, uh, very much <laughs> kind of sounds like uh, when I refereed basketball, it was you get noticed, you get into playoffs. And then if you get uniform, you know, you, uniform, your uniform, your uniform has to be, especially if you're a younger guy, you know, you show that you're fair. You show that you, you know, call it both ways. You don't, you know, no favoritism, no, uh, like you're, you're helping a team or, you know, maybe come back or anything. And, uh, you know, you get noticed, you get into playoffs, you get there, then you could go into the, you know, the provincial refereeing. And so, uh, I'm, I'm glad that it sounds very familiar, uh, across all, uh, in theory, across all sports. Now we all know, um, emotions in baseball go from, zero to a hundred in less than a second. Sometimes just that one little incident can happen as an umpire. I got, I got two questions for you to kick off, Dave. Number one, what is the one thing above all else? Now I'm, I'm sure each umpire is different, but for you above all else, what's the one thing that a manager or player will do that will set you off really quickly. And number two, when two teams are having issues with each other, how do you go about trying to defuse the situation? Okay, I'm going to jump right into the second one because that's the one that's a, a hot topic now in the collegiate baseball. Okay, professional athletes are paid. Whether or not we think it's fair or not fair that collegiate athletes aren't getting paid, that's besides, not our job, you know what I mean, as a referee. But we got to understand professional athletes get paid. Mm-hmm. Collegiate, collegiate athletes don't get paid. But what we got to realize is collegiate athletes need to stay in school to finish their degree programs. And if they get removed from games too many times and get suspended, they could lose their scholarship. And if they don't have money to pay for their school, 
they might lose their education for their future. So wow. that's a top, that's a thing where a lot of people don't realize in collegiate sports. You can't just go and dump and inject anyone just because they say you suck. You know, you gotta, you can't, I'm not going to let someone use profane language with a pronoun as an example, you, you know, if you use some profane language and it's not audible to the fans and it's not directed at me, why would I get involved with it? You know, if you use profane language and you're a, a college athlete and you're not getting paid and the profanity is audible to the stands, certain conferences, certain divisions and leagues have different penalties for that. And some are removal of game immediately. If the profane language is audible to the stands. So if you ground out, if you ground out to a double play that ends the inning and you swung at a pitch in the dirt and you, and you say mother F down the first baseline and no one hears you, but the umpire, you can't eject that, that person. Cause he's not directed at you. So that's the first thing I like to get people to know. There's time and place. Okay. Okay. So professional baseball, I can't speak because I've never worked a live regular season professional baseball game. But I have friends that have. So I know that in professional sports, every person that's sitting there paid for a ticket. So, you know, if a fan tells you something about your mother's height or weight, you can't turn around and say anything about it. But if you're at a lower level of amateur baseball and someone says anything profane or abusive to anyone, they're going to be removed from the game. But if you're a paying fan, it's up to the security of the stadium and the location you're at to determine what they deem is okay for their fan base. My birds are flying everywhere right now. <laughs> Just got attacked by a bird. It's not a blue jay, but it's a blue parakeet. It's close. <laughs> so on the topic of removal of a game, the one thing that will get me the fastest, and I hate re revealing it to everyone, but it's usually when someone says, hey, that's two. So like mm -hmm. if, if they're all like, oh, that's two now but I didn't hear you had a problem with the first pitch. So where's this two all of a sudden? So I usually am quick to throw people out when they say that's two. So sometimes I have to watch myself, you know what I mean? Cause I had a coach once turn it on me. There was video evidence that showed that he was talking to me, but my back was turned. So when he yelled, Hey, that's two. And I threw him out. When I turned around, he was like, I'm telling my runner there's two outs which he wasn't, he was looking right at me. But under context as a referee, if I can't take that, I need to find a new job. No, that's, I mean, that's fair. That's what, it's still, it, yeah. these are the moment stuff, right? Yeah. Um, there's, there's another thing called sniping. Sniping really, you know, when you see a kid run and he trips and you say you got sniped, so yeah. they're, snip they're sniping at an umpire. So like uh, you're hiding somewhere in the dugout down the, down the tunnel that, and you're just sniping at the umpire and you're just yelling profane curse words about the strike zone or about 
something you saw on camera earlier in the game and now you're just like sniping from the dugout. Usually it gets both the umpire and the team in trouble because when people start sniping and the umpire can't see who's doing it, sometimes, you know, you just pick the person with the mouth that's open the biggest. And he might not be the one who's saying the bad stuff, but if you're always running your mouth in that same direction, there's profane language coming. There might be an unwarranted ejection where it was warranted, but the person who got ejected didn't deserve it. You'll see that a lot in Major League Baseball, too, where someone just gets picked. Usually a pitcher who's not pitching or a bench coach that doesn't matter, and they'll just say, hey, it was me. It's usually not them. <laughs> it's usually it's someone in the game. Right? It's usually someone in the game that wants to snipe, so they're not, like, seen doing it. So those are the things that get me pretty fast. Interesting. I've never, yeah, I've never thought about yeah. it that way. It's a very unique setup because not many other sports can you kind of hide and criticize and then, you know, get away with it for, for, uh, in, in a way. Can't hide on a hockey bench. That's for damn sure. Hockey bench. Yeah. Football, I mean, football field, you know, you could have like eight people around you be like, Oh, it wasn't me, but no, I'm but the main topic, I like to get on this. The difference between football and baseball is most issues that a coach or a team has with a football officiating crew happens in the middle of the field. And I'm not saying the 50-yard line. I'm saying the middle of the field is in between the hash marks mm -hmm. up along the field. Most issues are between the hash marks. Most issues about out of bounds are really – everyone can see it. Most of the issues are in between. So when a head coach in football wants to yell at the official, it's so loud, they're yelling at wing officials to relay to the officials on the inside how mad they are at them. So it's awesome seeing the restraint from these NFL referees on the wings, on the sideline, that are just taking all this stuff because they're trained that it's not about them. You know, they're mad at the officiating crew in the middle, but you're a crew as a whole. So – you see really good baseball umpiring at a crew level when you see an umpire you know he'll stay in the argument enough you know a little bit give it a little bit but eventually you're the umpire you know you're not the player the player is the one that makes a fool of himself so as an umpire you yell a little back eventually you need the secondary umpire to come in and do the rodeo and to get the guy away and then you see the umpire that's not involved, listen, and maybe even falsely agree with the guy just to make him happy. Be like, okay, I see what you're talking about. Okay, I'll talk to my guy about that. You know, you don't like his zone. Okay, I'll let him know. Don't worry, I got you. And then you get him off without incident. So. I think the best example of what you were just talking about, David, I saw was a flashback about seven years to that controversial Mets-Dodgers uh, mm -hmm playoff series there where uh, who was it it's uh can't with the remember with the throwing at the batters well the, but if you win the playoff series when he broke when the, the dodger guy slid and broke the mets guy's leg mm, or, the or ankle the chase that rule yeah thank you chase i couldn't i couldn't fourth, think of who, fourth place slide rule yeah and then the very the first game of the season or the first time they met the next year uh cinder de grom just threw right behind utley like right behind his head and he ejected yeah, him. Terry Collins came out like a bat out of hell. And you saw you saw the other guy come in and rodeo and just get him away. 
So no, I think that's actually the best example I've ever seen of what you're just talking about there. And it also speaks, um, it also speaks to helping out a younger umpire. You don't always want to step on someone's toes, but as a veteran umpire in that crew, I think he had 30 years of MLB service time. He took it upon himself knowing that the cameras were there that, you know, he's all like, this is what the league wants us to do. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, this is coming down from the league. You know, we were told before this game how to handle this. You know, I think it was Adam Hammery was the plate umpire for that. And it was one of his first couple years. And you could see him. I'm seeing the video now in my head. I've seen it a bunch of times. I see the young ump, the plate umpire throw out DeGrom. And then, like you said, the manager comes like a bat out of hell, comes out of the dugout. And you just see the plate umpire. He throws the, the manager out, too. And next thing you know, he's gone. Hey, yeah. you're the umpire. You made a call. You ejected the guy. There's no reason to argue anymore. You know, you stayed in the game arguing until you got ejected. There's no reason. We're not changing the call once the guy gets ejected. So you might as well just get on with it as an umpire. Doesn't walk away a little bit. Do you think that uh, in, in hockey, they've recently brought it out where, you know, any double minor or major penalty can be video reviewed by the officials and altered if they made if they feel they made the wrong call in the moment. Mm-hmm. Do you think that baseball needs that for umpires? That an ejection that happens right away, heat of the moment, they they heave ho, but they can take a second afterwards before the guy actually leaves the game, stop back and get a, a, a video review of it, and be like, no, okay, we shouldn't have thrown him out. You can stay in the game. Does that need to come, or does it just need to be as is? I don't want to comment saying that it needs to come or when it's going to come. But when you put it in the perspective of hockey, you know, if you get hit with, you know, a double minor and you didn't do anything that warranted it and there's a power play that goes the other way and it's a one nothing game and that was the swing, that was the only time that a, that a goal was scored was on that swing with the power play, you know, and you miss playoffs by one game or you're one point behind in your conference and that was an in-conference game or something, dude, we're talking money these days. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying betting wasn't a big thing before because it was, but it's even bigger now. You know, it's even bigger now with everything being videoed. And I don't, the rule book states that to give warnings on throwing at a batter to warn a pitcher does not need to have anything intentional. But in the rule book, to not have a warning before and to remove a pitcher from the game without the warning, you have to have intent. So what what intent will a video show? Mm. What if the if you have a good poker face and you've trained to be playing poker on TV, how do they know when you're bluffing? So when it comes to only pertaining to hit by pitches, I don't think we can go to video, but you know, I think it comes down to an umpire just saying like, if you throw someone out for saying you suck, And then the guy says it wasn't me and you got the wrong person. It's up to the team to be like, hey, it wasn't him. It was me. 
So an umpire can uneject and eject someone else. Okay. But it's, it's against all code to feel that an ejection was warranted and then pull it all back. That's because when it comes to throwing at someone, when it comes to throwing at someone, if you're a professional pitcher, uh, you could be able to change your release point without like looking mad. No, good point. Good point. And then this is what it's all about. You know, we're, we're, we're going to talk about all angles here of umpiring because none of us, uh, and I mean, I've been watching baseball since I've been old enough to remember. So we're talking 30 years of watching baseball and there's a lot that we don't know about. So th- it's a good chance to explore this here tonight with you. Um, there, th- th- we'll, we'll leave the topic of robo umps. I'm not touching that one tonight because I don't know we about can touch it a little bit. bit. We can touch the okay, time. It's it's a pretty hot topic, especially I don't know if you caught it, but there was an Oakland Blue Jays game earlier this year where the they released a lot of the umpiring metrics after the game. And I believe the home, the home plate umpire was uh, Kent Nelson, if I remember correctly. And his metrics were atrocious. He actually, according to the metrics, he actually swung the game almost two runs in Oakland's favor. And he missed about 30% of the pitches on the Blue Jays. Mm-hmm. And it, it looked like he screwed the Blue Jays. And the metrics say, like, well, you screwed Toronto out of two runs. And, and Toronto wanted to lose the game by a run. How long was this data compiled for? Did it come immediately after the game or three days after? Because about, I'm pretty about 48 sure most hours or so. Okay, okay, because most baseball fans don't know that the projections that you see on the screen the same day, yeah, but with K Zone, K Zone is just one company that provides it for ESPN. The, when the ball is hollow, it's registering as a ball. When it's yeah. filled in completely, it's registering as a strike. You know, so there's there's point of emphasis when it comes to margin of error. So when you come to margin of error and real time, they're giving a margin of error so great of almost three inches. So a baseball is just slightly larger than three inches in circumference. Mm-hmm. So when you put it down on a ruler, obviously a round ball, you know, it's not going to be a full three inches wide, but it's almost, it's almost there. So when you take two baseballs and you put them on the black, of the plate technically that should be where the batter's box line is drawn where the batter's feet are legally allowed to be in the box so when we talk about bad pitches by an umpire we're talking about pitches that are called strikes on the white line you know we're not all big league umpires we're not all big league players and you know the the home plate's 17 inches wide so when you have a catcher's mitt that's 15 inches anywhere between 13 and 15 inches in circumference. When you have a catcher's mitt setting up on the corner of a plate, and as an umpire, you see the glove on the corner, but the catcher catches the ball in the web and doesn't frame it or turn it, but literally just catches it. Literally. The glove can be on the plate. The ball can be six inches outside. So for the purposes of video, it's really messed up. But when you look at it, 48 hours later, then the data is more correct. Yeah. So, so sometimes, so sometimes you can see, here, let me finish my point where I was getting okay, to. You could see the day of, wow, that umpire didn't miss a pitch. 
And then 48 hours later, it comes back that he swung it two runs for the other side. People don't look at it because they don't look back on information when it didn't look bad in the get-go. When it looks bad, they want to search. When it looks good, people are okay with what it looks good or not. Oh, that car looks good. I'm not going to look under the hood. That car looks a little suspect. I'm going to take it to my mechanic. I'm going to get it checked out. So, you know, those bad umpire games, Angel Hernandez, it's oh, so yeah. crazy. Dude, let, let me say one thing, though. If okay. you take the last decade of all called pitches, balls and strikes, Angel Hernandez is in the top tier of percentages in the last decade. But if you take those percentages and break them off when those missed pitches happened, it happens on the worst time every time. It's really tough. You know, we can't get judged as a whole because we only get judged when we're horrible. But if you're always horrible at the worst times, dude, you need to find, I don't know. You know, you got to be good when it's time to be clutch. I think that's the only uh, issues I have with Angel. Sorry, go ahead, Justin. I was going to say, I think that's kind of how you find out, uh, you know, kind of what you're made of. You know, athletes get called all the time. How do you act in the big moments? It's the same thing with, uh, you know, officiating. You might not be having a good game and all that, but, you know, every game has an important moment and, you you know, you do, you got to be on top of it because if not, it just kind of builds and builds. And that's, you know, where we get an Angel Hernandez and uh, he's a household name for people who don't even watch baseball, but know that he's a horror, you know, he, ha- he has lots of complaints as an umpire. Sorry, my, my only issue with guys like Angel Hernandez and uh, Vic Carapaza is that they have lightning hair triggers that throw people out for no reason. Like, it just, you know, they, they ask a question saying, okay, where was this one versus this one? Boom, gone. It's like, like, come on. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's not, I, I, I don't know if, if that's, you know, maybe in their mind they're being shown up by the player. I don't, you know, I'm not a mind reader, but. It, it looks through the screen as being just an innocent question of being, okay, like he's pointing, this one was there, but this one was there. Why are you calling the same two? But mm-hmm. I mean, Vic is, Vic is worse than Angel in my mind. Vic has got the worst tear trigger I've ever seen of anybody. But the, the point I was going to go with, uh, and I didn't, I wasn't going to ask this question, Dave, but you said we can go there. More and more you're hearing talk about eventually bringing in the, the quote unquote robo ump. I'm not a fan of it because it takes away a lot of the human element of the game. And that is something mm-hmm. that we have, we, we, we've sort of forgotten about that is humans. We are human beings and the mistakes are going to happen down in the States, down in Arizona and all through the Southwestern United States. What kind of rumblings are there? What, what, what kind of, you know, whispers behind the scenes, if you will, are there about the, the potential of robo lumps coming in? I'm not asking if they should be, because obviously that's your job on the line. So obviously you don't think so. But what kind of rumblings are there about robo-lumps eventually being brought in? Uh, I don't think jobs are going to be at risk if they bring in a fully automated strike zone in. Because there's so many factors behind the plate. The issue that I have, and I believe that there will never be a fully automated ball strike system, is if you're going to take the ball strikes out of the hands of the umpire, then you have to take the umpire out of that position who gets hit by foul balls and he gets put in the hospital. If you're not going to be there to look for a pitch, I cannot be there with a mask on to get hit by foul balls just to look to see 
for catcher's interference or batter's interference or, you know, plate umpire's responsible on all check swings before he gives it off to his partners. Um, you know, if we're going to go fully automated, then we're going to have to go fully automated on everything. Uh, that's really tough. It's really tough. It's really tough. On the other end, I've worked with Trackman. I was at the Kansas City Royals during spring training this year. I believe it was March 21st. They call it minor league umpire meeting day. So all, all spring training minor league umpires were in the same training seminar that day. That day is known for Arizona amateur umpires as the day that you can get on to a real spring training game, not big leagues, but a minor league game, triple A, double A, single A, and you can see upcoming players. Well, this year I happened to work a game where they had trackmen set up and it was Royals Cubs. You know, it was a pretty relaxed day. Everyone was pretty cool. Um, you know, I went into the room after. I think I missed three pitches. I think I saw 700 pitches that day. It was probably the best I ever worked. But at the end of the day, that game didn't mean anything to me. But it meant a lot for training to hopefully get better. But, um, you know, I called a couple pitches that I thought weren't strikes that were, you know, I balled the pitch down and I was like, that's down. And I was like, that's down. And later, you know, after the game, they showed me the video and they said that it wasn't down. Um, a lot of people don't know when the strike zone actually starts. If you look at the rule book, it's when the batter's hands naturally move forward. So you look at Jeff Bagwell in his prime, Jeff Bagwell was so low to the ground but the strike yeah. zone wasn't where the bottom of the hollow his knees were when he was getting ready real low. The strike zone for the rule book was when he took his, when he lifted his leg to swing and he loaded up to get his power as his hands move forward. That's when the strike zone starts. So a lot of people don't realize that that box that you watch on TV is not the represented box of what some leagues use on their ear. The box is provided by the broadcast company that is that hosts your local team's games. You know, if you like ESPN broadcast games, you see K zone, you know, K zone is cool because it comes with other cool facts. You know, they have ball rate and stuff now when people are hitting, which are kind of cool but it's not the same system that they use to grade the umpires to promote them or to fire them. So until they start using the same system to show the fans what the balls and strikes that the supervisors are grading those actual umpires on, that's the only time that we're going to be like transparent to see what a real strike zone looks like. You know, a strike zone can only be set up properly if the lasers are all set up properly. Right now, they have the laser beam set up to about like three quarters of an inch in front of the front edge of the plate. So there is a margin of error, not when we're talking width-wise. The computer is 100% accurate. If the cameras are set up, then there's no margin for error for 17 inches at the front edge of the plate. We're talking about the Y-axis when it comes to the height of a batter and where you set the top of the strike zone to the bottom. You know, I've seen punch outs in the minor league baseball where the ball is in the dirt. The catcher goes to block it. 
You know, it was a big curveball. The K-Zone said it was a strike. So the guy, 10 seconds later, says strike three. And everyone's like, what are you talking about? That was in the dirt. And then he points to his earpiece saying it wasn't me. It was the robot. And then everyone yells at the umpire and he ejects people anyway for arguing balls and strikes against a robot. It makes no sense. So, like... Do you... Uh... No, I was like very fascinating because baseball was the the last major sport to bring in, uh, you know, like video replay, regardless of like the mm-hmm. balls and strikes, like mm-hmm. that that's going to be an argument that I don't think will ever get settled. And you could be perfect still get better with... too. Yes, replay. Oh, oh yes, but why do you think baseball was so apprehensive to bring in replay? Um, like even for certain situations, uh, you know, obviously football was kind of the, the major one early, early on to bring it in. And it's been honed in by, you know, hockey, like Charles was saying, even checking uh, if, uh, you know, something basketball was kind of slow because I don't think they really saw a benefit until, you know, checking to see if the ball had left his hand uh, or, you know, if it was a two or a three in those big moments, why not have that reassurance? But, like, what was baseball's apprehension when it came to video replay outside of the, oh, it's going to make the game longer? Because that's a whole nother argument that I is, you know, being debated right now. But other than the, oh, it just makes the game five hours. Do we know why baseball was apprehensive to uh, bring in video replay for certain situations? I don't think I know why they would be apprehensive you can just probably put it on you don't want to mess something that's that's messed up something that's good but as a as a um do you get a chance to uh, i guess junior college maybe not so uh set up but have you had the chance to to kind of use it and see like the benefits uh that it brings to the game First handedly, no, I've never had an actual play that was subject to be overturned or confirmed uh, on my field, but I have had a lot of film sent to me that has, you know, what's the term that they use that to, to, to overturn something, the footage has to be irrefutable, right? Yeah. Has to be irrefutable. So, I've seen footage where I was like, dang, I got that wrong. And, you know, I can learn from it as an umpire. But when it comes to a game as a whole, um, I think it was all consumer-based. So I think it had to – I don't want to comment because I don't have knowledge of it. So it's just going to be my my guess on it. But my guess would be, you know, to just project consumer numbers of the future – I don't even think people are too worried about the game year to year. And these people that are changing stuff, like people get all hyped up that the game's going to be changed. They're just proving that they're like willing to try stuff and for it to not be permanent as well. So I really think they're using this time as like that COVID when COVID hit, you know, and people just started trying all kinds of things just to see what would work. I think this is a great time in all aspects of life just to see what works and what doesn't work. But we just have to be okay with and make something doesn't work fast. So I'm all for anything to try it as long as, you know, if it doesn't work, we can go back. 
So I think video replay, people were just so apprehensive because they just didn't know how far it would go. Are we going to – what happened to those big, huge home run balls that they were like, foul, and the whole home team knew that it was fair. And, you know, it's not fair that the call was unfair, but the way that the game was played was like football. You know, if the flag wasn't thrown, the flag wasn't thrown. Now, now there's so much TV footage where they'd rather throw a flag and pick it up. They used to never pick up flags in the 70s and 80s. If someone mm-hmm. threw a flag, no one was going to step on their toes and pick up their flag. So now umpiring's different. When it comes to replay, the major league umpires and the higher collegiate umpires, I don't have a direct supervisor, but I would err on the side of not foul on a home run because at the end of the day, you can just call something foul. But if you call something foul too fast, you stop runners from running and now you have to place runners. And that's when we have big protests and big ejections is when you see obstruction calls and there's placing of runners. Like a runner starts at first base. Should he score on a ball to the outfield? Well, who knows if he would have tripped around second or third, but that's part of the rule book because it leaves it up to the umpire to remove. If the obstruction had not occur, where would the runner be? And, you know, when it comes to video replay, that's not going to help because it's using your judgment. And video doesn't help judgment. Video isn't what the umpire's judgment was. It's what the viewer can see proven. Sometimes evidence is worse. Sometimes too much evidence is worse because when a call comes back not confirmed, and there just wasn't enough evidence to overturn it, then that's the league basically saying the umpire isn't right. He's just not wrong enough. That's an interesting point. There's just the, that last line. Uh, maybe there's something we don't think about often enough is that, you know, the league's not backing the umpire, but they're not, you know. They're not overturning it. And it's not the league. So there's, there's set umpire crews and, you know, you're with, For the most part, you have a crew chief and you have three other umpires on your crew. And throughout the year, you get cycled throughout different regions of the country. And eventually you make your cycle through New York. And there's always two crews out in New York. So a lot of people don't know that, you know, I think it was three, four years ago now. Any call that goes to New York is it's judged by an actual major league umpire. So that I didn't know that right away either. I thought that was pretty cool how it's a legit umpire working. You know, there's people, professionals that know how to speed up and splice camera angles together. But it's a major league umpire saying, "Okay, pause screen A at 27 seconds. I want screen B at 26 and a half seconds. And I want both camera angles twisted so I can see where the umpire missed that tag or if the tag barely got the pant leg or not. I know I'm being very vague, but it's insight that I just got, which I thought was pretty cool. So to go any further in instant replay, you know, there's still things that are not replayed. So foul tips, foul balls that might or might not be caught directly to the catcher. So a ball that strikes the bat and it goes to the dirt and the catcher picks it. The umpire says foul tip caught, and the batter's like, that skipped. That's not reviewable, but you can see it on camera. 
So it just takes oh, I time. I don't think those two ever get reviewed. It's not reviewable right now, but it should no, I, be. I don't think it should ever be in the first place. No, because that's just part of the game. Exactly. You know, um, I don't know where I saw it, but I remember seeing a coach yelling at an umpire saying, check the ball, check the ball, to see if, like, the ball skipped or something. And the umpire's like, I'm not checking the ball. And Bob Melvin, Oakland. Yeah, and then, it, and then it was done or whatever. And I think it was Bob Melvin in Oakland. Yeah. Check the ball. Yeah. I, th- I just think there's like a lot, there's a, you know, some fans out there who just want every single call, like correct. But you got that in any sport, you know, uh, you just want a perfect game. You want every, you know, no problem situations. And if there's problem, that's why there's video to like, make sure that the right call. I just think that's unrealistic, but of course they're going to be a, a very vocal minority, especially on social media. Um uh, now, I don't know in the collegiate level how uh, this pertains, but we're seeing, uh, especially I think this major league season, uh, I mean, last was a little wonky, uh, just with uh, the checking of, uh, you know, substances on pitchers' hands. And uh, it's just, I, I think it's gotten not worse, but like it, it's on everyone's mind now. And there, you know, we've had situations where, uh, you know, managers keep, you know, saying check, check. And, you know, pitchers are getting pissed off. So like, really dude, like, uh, have you had to deal with that much at the collegiate level or, or is it more like, okay, for, I don't know the rules for, for, especially for junior college, uh, what they allow and not allow, but, um, do you see this, uh, you know, becoming, uh, worse as time goes on and, uh, like the umpires are getting the brunt of it. Uh, or do you think there could be a, you know, a, a settlement or like an agreement with the players or in the future? Yeah. So tough thing about sticky tack, it's a spider tack they're talking about. It's just like a sticky adhesive um, in the same family as pine tar, but different. It could be spray on, it could be roll on, um, you know, pine tar is widely used on bats. It's on gloves on batting helmets um people wear batting gloves underneath their fielding glove depending on the position that i played i sometimes had a glove sometimes i didn't have a batting glove underneath some players switch out their batting gloves some use batting gloves to hit with some have running gloves some have a glove they use under their fielding glove so what's stopping a third baseman that has his batting glove underneath his glove from accidentally taking his glove off and just messing with his glove and just throwing the ball back to the pitcher. So just having spider tack on a ball doesn't mean the pitcher put it on it. So I guess I understand what they're doing. You know, if you're just holding a baseball, there shouldn't be spider tack on this part of your arm. <laughs> or here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so in regards to the collegiate level, I had a coach this year, um, <laughs> at the, the inning ended and he's like, Dave, come here. I'm like, okay. I'm like, what? And like, we have COVID protocols. So we're really not supposed to like get together just for nothing. And I'm like, what's up? And he's like, Hey, I think that pitcher has pine tar in his glove. I'm like, which pitcher? 
And he, and he goes, the pitcher that just pitched against us this last inning. I go, well, he's in the dugout now. What do you want me to do? And he goes, well, what if there's something on his glove? I'm like, well, then I'll just eject him now. And he's all like, well, I wanted to do it when he was on the mound. I said, well, why didn't you ask me to check while he was pitching? So now I'm supposed to go into a dugout and check a pitcher's glove when he's not on the mound. And he can just say that's my, my backup glove. It's not the glove I was using. So I told him, I said, hey, if he comes out to pitch again, I'll check his glove. Well, he didn't come out to pitch to the next inning. So <laughs> I, did, I did. But if I go into a dugout and say, hey, let me see your glove. And you're openly cheating with the glove. You're not like you're going to give me your backup glove that doesn't have the pine tar. So I was like, do you want me to really go in there and ask for a random glove? Because if I was them, I'd just give me the cleanest glove and just say that was the glove I was using. So at the collegiate level, depending on how many TV crews are there, I think really determines on how a coaching crew, coaching staff handles stuff. But just like little players, younger age players look up to big league hitters and like to mimic their bat flips and it causes issues in lower levels of baseball. It goes to the same for coaches. They watch Major League Baseball and they want, they think that they're a Major League coach. So they start bringing up issues that usually weren't pertain to that level of baseball. So we'll, we'll start seeing it bleed here in the next couple of years more. Now, we, we sort of touched on this earlier, and I want to circle back to it just for a second. Um, throughout, uh, you know, if uh, I don't know at the collegiate level that they have three and four game series against each other like they do in Major League Baseball. But if a team has played, the two teams play each other and there's known beef, there's history. Mm-hmm. When they're going to re- when, when the rematch comes up and you're part of the crew there, do you have any kind of, a, now with COVID, do you have like a Zoom meeting with a, an area supervisor or do you have anyone from a higher level of authority come down and talk to you guys being like, Hey, this is what we're looking for. This is what we've seen. This is what we heard situations where teams have beef. Uh, we've seen it a few times in the NHL. It, it makes public news that, you know, prior to a series, uh, the referees or prior to a game after, a, after an, an intense uh, penalty filled affair, uh, the referees get a bit of a visit uh, or a memo from the league office saying, Hey, there's known beef here between these two teams. You guys got to nip this in the bud. I don't know at the collegiate level if they have three and four game series like they do in the major leagues and AAA. But do you guys ever get, you know, like weekly meetings with supervisors or before every game or before every series? Or is it only when there's beef between teams? Do you get sort of like a, a heads up saying, hey, uh, everyone's paying attention to this? Uh, talk to me about, talk to us about that here. Uh, how, how does that work out? How's that situation play out? So at the collegiate level, um, you start the season off with monthly Zoom meetings as a, as a league or as a conference. And you'll just go over generalized rules. The first meeting will be new rules and rules that might have had issues that caused issues the year before. And every, every meeting after that is really going to contain issues that have occurred throughout the year so far. Um, Division one baseball plays three game series on the weekends in conference. So they'll play conference mates that are part of the same league during the weekends during the week, they'll play non-conference. So they'll play interleague play. So there are three game, two to three game series. And 
Usually a new series brings in a new officiating crew. A whole new crew. So the professional level, you'll never see a team go. They rarely have back-to-back series where they'll swap home and away and play against each other. You'll usually have like a four-game series, and then you might play a division rival the, the following series. Like you'll have four games in Toronto, and you might go to Tampa for three, and you might go back to Toronto for another four. Your season might be scheduled like that, but you're typically going to have a new crew. So when a new crew comes in, the league supervisor will let you know what issues occurred. And then depending on the severity of the issues, it could be something, hey, we're going to nip it in the butt before the game and issue pregame warnings. Or just, you know, hopefully, you know, sometimes payback isn't always given right away. So you have to, you just have to be, you just have to be alert at all times. So you were saying uh, with, uh, you know, doing junior college and D1, how much uh, do you travel? Do you kind of stay uh, within like uh, Arizona? Do you sometimes uh, go into different states, uh, especially when the, you know, the, the high season for, uh, <laughs> for baseball is? Um, and does it kind of ramp up uh if you were to go into D1, do you stay within like the ACC conference or do they bounce you around? Uh, what does travel look like for you? So right now I'm a junior college umpire in Arizona. Uh, I am a member of the junior college conference and that has a body of 12 schools throughout Arizona. So the majority of the schools are in the major metropolitan area of where I live in, in Arizona. But there are six schools that are needing travel to get there. So our travel is all by car, and the furthest school is four hours. And then when you jump to Division One, you know, being an Arizona guy, there's only two really strong, two to three strong Division One schools in the whole state. So if you're part of a Division One conference, they usually govern their bodies, you know, throughout multiple state lines. Um, you know, the big one, the big Division One conference where I'm at is called the Pac-12. So the Pac-12 is known for football and baseball and basketball. And for us, there's only three main baseball schools in our state. So if you're going to umpire Division One baseball, you got to be good enough to get picked up by a conference that's willing to pay for your flights. So that's really what it gets down to. So for me, if I lived in California, I could possibly be be part of a Division Two or a Division One conference where all I do is drive four to five hours. But it makes it harder for a guy like me that's in a state where most Division One conferences are in the bordering states: California, New Mexico. Nevada, not just Arizona as a whole. It was actually going to be my next question was your conferences, do they align similar to uh, the NC basketball NCAA and football NCAA of the, the Big Ten, Pac-12, uh, all those, do they align the same way for baseball? 
Yep. So you're going to be a participating member in a specific conference. And to umpire a conference versus conference game, you're, you have to be a conference umpire. Um, to work non-conference, you know, you could have a big, big name university play a junior college. And, you know, it could go towards their regular season record, but it won't go towards their playoff record. Just like you see baseball, like you could play the AL West, the NL West, but, you know, you could be in a, you can be in a shitty division where 76, 76 wins gets you a playoff berth where, and you're in another division and you have three teams at a hundred wins and you're fighting for a wild card out of your same division. Um, it's tough. ALB, as we call it here. Yeah, exactly. So for umpiring, um, there are a lot of umpires that are part of different conferences. <clears throat> and if you have a job that lets you travel a lot and you're good with your supervisors and you keep your schedule up to date, you know, you can be a busy umpire traveling the whole country if you're good. And that was going to be the part two was, are umpires assigned to a specific conference or do they rotate through? Like, will oh, okay. like if you if you got to the promotion of the, the NCAA Division One, would you be working Pac-10 and uh, you know the Big Ten, Pac-12, all that, or would you only be uh, Pac-12? So every conference has a governing body. Yeah. Uh, every conference has to abide by and adhere to NCAA rules and standards. But as long as all those rules and standards are met, every conference can add in their own sub bylaws to a conference. So every conference has a conference baseball umpire supervisor, just like every other sport will have a main supervisor for every conference. And that conference supervisor will do all the hiring and firing to retain or not to retain an umpire. So usually guys have a home conference. So my home conference is my Arizona junior college. So if I ever get blessed with an opportunity to get hired by another conference, I would have to keep my schedule at the junior conference, my priority, because that's that my main supervisor is the one that's going to put my name in for the next level. So then if I, God forbid, ever get, or if God ever blesses me with a chance to be a division one umpire, I might start with one conference and that's going to have to be my bread and butter conference. Maybe in 10 years I can start working other conferences, but that first one is going to be the one that you work the most games. And the only way you can get in playoffs is if you get a conference tournament. So to get a conference tournament, you got to have X, X amount of games in that specific conference. So if I'm a young guy and I'm like, I want to work for four conferences, and I'm like, why am I never getting playoffs? I might not be getting seen by one specific supervisor long enough. So I think it's up to you as an official how you want to umpire. If you want to spread your wings and umpire more, or if you want to settle down and just move up. Do you think there's, uh, like, uh, I, I believe – baseball probably has uh, a higher age uh in its officiating out of the all the major uh sports do you think that the 
they just take uh, they want you to have so much experience, which take years to get in order to make it to, you know, division one or even, you know, triple A uh, baseball. Of course, there are exceptions where you see young people, but, you know, the, the Angel Hernandez, uh, you know, all, all these people you see that especially on TV, they're, they're so much older. Uh, do you think there, there should be a change up on kind of what they think, uh, to get younger, uh, members higher up, I don't want to say faster, but more yeah. excelled. Yeah. Well, I think if you want to just look at umpiring and put it as just any other career, because for these guys at the highest level, that's their career choice. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what provides their families with, you know, a room, uh, a roof over their head and food on their plates throughout the year. So when you look at a business, you got to have retirement plans for your employees to want to stick in a job for that long. You know, you got to have benefits. So when it comes to a union or a corporation, you got to have incremental points in your career where you reach different aspects of what your future retirement benefit package might look like. So for professional baseball, there's two different unions. I think they just merged this last year, but previous to this year, there was a minor league umpire union, and then there was a major league umpire union. So just because you became a major league umpire, and that's your first year, it might take 15 years before you reach a good package to retire. And they see all these old umpires that don't want to retire they might not know the stipulations of where they have to reach to get to their pinnacle of their retirement package. You know, um, it might take 12 years to get to the big leagues. You might start umpiring professionally at 25. So you're 35 before you even see your first spring training in the major leagues. Then you have 25, then you have 20 years. You have a solid 20 year career. You're 55. So that's only if everything worked out perfect that you're 55 and the big leagues retiring. You know, some guys are 35, 36, 37 when they break out. You know, who wants to let go? I'm going to throw out a number. Let's just say you make 100 grand a year umpiring baseball. You know, there's teachers who work all year long with a short summer who might make half of that, you know. So there's these guys who work really hard and they might make a hundred grand a year who wants to retire. What if your retirement package is only a percentage of that? You know, I don't know. I've never been a major league umpire, but I'm not sure if it's the same union as it was being a milkman back in the day. You, you deliver milk for 20 years, no matter how bad your 21st or 22nd year of your quality of delivering milk still got the same payment every week. So these guys that are older umpiring that might suck now, they might have 30 years of umpiring awesome and their union doesn't have something to release them when it just comes to quality of umpiring. I don't know, but it could be that. Um, I know for a fact in division one baseball, as of this year, there's more umpires over the age of 60 than there are under the age of 40. So that might not seem like a big red flag, but you know, the day and age that we have with, you know, open use of alcohol and everything and partying between the ages of 60 and 75, you know, you could die. Who knows when you could die? You know, you could be a healthy six-year-old man and you could die at 65 from a heart condition you didn't know about. 
So in the next decade, when all these umpires who are now 60 reach 70, a good half of them could pass away. And there might not be the next branch of younger officials to fill their footsteps. So if we want to tie into the way that fans at the lower level treat umpires and referees in every sport, it's a really a shame because there's people who on their second year of umpiring quit because they just don't want to deal with it. And they haven't been given a chance to fall in love with officiating as a whole. So they don't find other outlooks to deal with the stresses that they're being put under. Um, and they just quit. And no one asks them why. And they just don't come back to the next year's umpire meeting. And, you know, fans still want to yell and fans still want the calls to be right. But, you know, when um, I'm a bartender as well. So when my when I don't make you a drink you don't like, you yell at me the first time? Or do you say, hey, bro, this drink sucks. Can you make me another one? And it's up to me as an honest bartender to be like, hey, I probably messed up that drink. I should remake that drink. And maybe I won't charge you for the remake because that was on me. But as an umpire, you don't get that shot at the highest level. You make a mistake, they're on you. You make another mistake, they're on you even more. And then if you throw them out, you might survive it, you might not. Now, Dave, we we sort of know, just to not really change the subject for a second, but just to sort of maybe lighten it up, because that was, that was some heavy stuff there uh, for a second. Um we, we, we know that in Canada and the United States, uh, if you live on the East Coast, like I do, I'm, I'm, I'm on the East side and you're on the Western side and Justin's on the West Coast out here in Canada, life is different. There's a different flair to life. Uh, does that sort of work its way into how umpires behave? Like, do, does the East Coast have a bigger flair? Do, 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 are, they, uh, are they more dramatic, but do they more umpire a certain way compared to a West Coast umpire? Or is it more north-south? How, how, how does geography play into the style of game, style of umpiring that you, that you might see? Funny you say that, Charles. Um, I never thought of it that way until this year. I had a partner bring up. He's like, hey, I think that first base coach played college baseball on the East Coast. I'm like, what does that have to do with today's game? And he's all like, do you see the way he's yelling at you? You know, he's not getting personal, but he's, he's always on you. And my partner revealed to me that he's umpired on the East Coast and more sports referees umpire more, not more, multiple sports. It's not just specified to one sport because on the East Coast, you don't always have rain. You always don't have sunshine. You know, some sports are played inside and, and for, for good reasons. For damn good re for damn good reasons, you know the ice rink feels warm half the year. You know you go inside for shelter. <laughs> we're here, we're freezing. You know what I mean? When I was a kid, we were happy to get inside the ice rink so the so the ice didn't hit your face anymore, blowing sideways. Yeah. Um, East Coast baseball umpires will not eject you as fast as a West Coast baseball umpire, not because of the way the players play but it's because of the way other sports get treated as umpires or referees get treated. You know, in basketball, you get a clipboard. You know, a head coach could be smacking a clipboard. 
up and down the baseline and you might give him a technical, but he's not removed from the game. They just get to shoot some free throws. You know, if a, if a manager throws a clipboard or smacks a clipboard near me or towards me in any way, I'm going to remove them from the game because that's just how baseball is. Um, I believe if you officiate more sports, you get a thicker skin when you finally get onto the baseball field as an umpire. But if you come onto the baseball field as an umpire and it's your secondary sport, people will know. It's a weird conundrum. There's a lot of great baseball umpires that are awesome football referees. Not too many football referees also do baseball. Um, yeah, I, it's a weird. I have it's a, a hard weird time seeing you know a football referee put, picking putting on the the uniform. Uh, yeah. Go behind home plate. Yeah, but you could see a baseball referee or an umpire could learn another rule book and can find a, a spot on a football crew, maybe a high school football crew. He wants to help out in the high school sports. I think a baseball umpire can fill a void in any sport. Um, maybe not hockey because you got to know how to skate. <laughs> Duh. Uh, but I think most other sports, you could probably be a good referee if you're already a baseball umpire. Um, baseball umpires on the West Coast, there's baseball all year long. You know, it's, it's about $30 an hour. You're an independent contractor at the, at the amateur level. Um, on the weekend, you can clear 700 US dollars umpiring baseball at a kid's level. It's so lucrative. It's such a good job. More people need to do it at the lower level. Um, I think every baseball coach before getting a high school position should umpire a league for a season. I think just like every baseball umpire needs to pass a rules test. I think a baseball coach should pass a rules test. I think every league at the beginning of the year, I think every umpire should write down one thing that they think coaches need to know better that could avoid issues. And I think every league, I think every coach should come up with one thing they think the umpires can get better at that annoy them. You know, I, it sucks, but you know, we're not professional. I'm not a professional umpire. These guys aren't professional coaches at the lower level. And, you know, we all need to do it to make the game better. So I think if we cross train and learn how the other party has, to, what the responsibilities that you have to have coaching nine, you know, sometimes there's 15 kids on a baseball team. There could be two adults as a coach. You know, I might not realize what that puts on a coach, the stress that puts on a coach and, maybe that coach doesn't know what I go through dealing with him. So I think it goes both ways on that side too. That's a great kind of insight into like, you know, what, what does the future hold uh, for, you know, this sport? It seems to be all the major sports uh, at the professional level have, you know, kind of gone through, I don't want to say growing pains, but moving into the, you know, the 20, 21st century you know with whether it's lockouts salary caps uh you know video replay uh, expansion you know how to use social media for you know to gain followers and how to rejuvenate fans and get them hooked or interested younger um so where do you see kind of the evolution of 
I guess, umping uh, as it pertains to baseball? How do you think it can help grow uh, the game so that younger kids understand it? And, you know, there's not no more talk of like, oh, you know, baseball's fans are dying out and they're not being replenished. So like, what does, you know, does soccer take its place as a top four? Like, how do you see umping helping baseball move into the future? I think the most important thing for the future of baseball, I look back when I was a kid at the league meetings, they would always talk to the parents. Hey guys, someone needs to pitch in and help umpire this year. We need to scratch that. We don't need more dads starting to umpire. We need more athletes that want to be referees. We need more athletes that want to have good part-time jobs that aren't at restaurants and that could keep them on the same field that they want to hopefully get a, you know, work into a college program or play professional sports. You know, what's going to get them more ready than learning how to officiate the sport they want to play professionally so when they get to the next level, they know what the referees are expecting. You know, what, what hurts gaining an edge on your opponent? I don't think anything hurts gaining an edge. And if I was a parent and my son wants to catch in the next level, I wouldn't be taking all the catching clinics. I would be enrolling him as an umpire for Little League Baseball and just like having him see pitches from different angles. And then he'll just become a better catcher on that side. And then when he decides he doesn't want to play baseball anymore, he developed this skill that earns money very well. You know, you can hold the key to your own schedule to work another job too. So I think the key to the future of baseball is, you know, maybe every game a team nominates one player that's not going to play. And that's going to be the junior umpire for the day. Let's put a yellow cap on his head and let's say you're not allowed to yell at the junior umpire. Whatever the junior umpire says, the main umpire has got to get with them if there's an issue, and they'll correct the call. So if every game a new player from a new team has to be the volunteer umpire, you know, one out of those 20 kids that gets the umpire that year is going to like it. You know, one out of those 20 kids that didn't like it at first is going to realize he's not good at playing the sport. But just because you're not good at playing it doesn't give you any less of a right to find something to love about it. And it could be officiating. So I think that's a good thing to to offer programs is to, hey, have a junior umpire program where it's all volunteer based. Pick a random kid from every team. You know, it's known from the whole league that if that kid wears that other umpire hat, you can't even look at him. Because we're not there to critique the umpiring. We're there to build the sport. So I think that could work. I think that has applications across a lot of different sports, not just baseball. That, that, that pardon the, the pun, but that's a home run idea. That, I that think is, so too. wow. That, 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 I'm not even sure I could have thought of that in a thousand years. So that's, um, and hey, Charles, I don't want to wow. say I'm taking the whole idea because there are junior referee programs around the country, but just take it the next level. Have everyone yeah. sign a piece of paper. Hey, if you want to part, if you want to participate as a guest to watch this sport, you're not going to yell at the junior umpire. Give him one season. Give him one season to not get yelled at, just to see if he likes it. If he doesn't like it, then it's America or it's Canada. You have a right to not do it anymore. But hey, maybe with one year of not getting yelled at, he can learn some skills where he's actually good the second year, so he doesn't get yelled at. Now, 
umpires get yelled at a lot, but they also take a lot of physical abuse throughout a season. What, what goes through your mind when you see, I don't know how fast the pitches come at your level, 50, 60, 70 miles an hour. When that thing's coming and you, and you know it's a number one, you know that the fastball come down the middle, do you just think to yourself, please let the catcher actually know what he's doing and catch this ball? And what happens, like, what's the first thing that goes to your mind when you get a foul ball that like, hits you in, in the knee or the shoulder or, God forbid, off the mask and rings your bell a little bit? How does that all play out? Like, I, I, what, what goes through your mind every time a pitch comes at you? Okay, so there's three kinds of balls you can get hit by as a plate umpire. And depending on what kind of ball you get hit by really depends on how you're going to react. So a foul ball is a ball that the batter just didn't yeah. connect properly. You know, you get smoked by foul balls, but that's the game. You get smoked by foul balls. What is not part of the game is when a pitcher and the catcher cannot get on sync when there's runners on base and they start using multiple signs and the catcher thinks it's an 0-2 slider outside and the pitcher bears a fastball up and in because he missed his spot. He was trying to throw a fastball up the misses spot in. The catcher thinks it's sliding out and the fastball just gets the umpire in the mask. That's a cross up. And those piss umpires off because you guys talk about the pitches. You're like, okay, second sign, third sign. You guys are professional now. So at the lower levels, you can't get as mad because they're not professional. So it's kind of tough. And then you don't know when the good old number one's coming. You're behind the catcher. You can't see his fingers. So you get kind of um, a rhythm of knowing your pitchers, knowing where they throw pitches. Usually when they set up in, it's usually not a breaking pitch. Usually it's fast. Usually when you usually when you set up out, it's not a breaking pitch because most pitchers see the glove and will throw a breaking pitch out, and that means it ends up in the batter's box way out. You know, a breaking pitch they usually set up middle or middle middle third. If it, if they're set up way out, it's usually fast because they want to hit a spot on the corner. But you know, when you get hit, man, sometimes sometimes I make a loud noise like I'm hurt. And it didn't even hurt. Sometimes I get hit in the balls and I'm like, I'm okay. And I'm all like, why did I just lie to everyone? I'm not okay. Like I need to take a break. But then I put the ball back in play and I, I can't take a break three pitches later. <laughs> so um, I think it really comes into rest every night. Just getting a good night's sleep and then just getting ready to get hit. You know, if, you, if you're ready to get hit and you get hit, then you're, re you're ready. But if you think you're not going to get hit and a skinny guy like me, you take a 95-mile-an-hour fastball or a foul ball right off your little skinny arm, off your wrist or your fingers, it hurts. It hurts. And um, you just got to suck it up. Know, that's, that's fair. Unless I've seen it's it a the few head. Times. Unless oh, it's the head yeah. or the throat. If you can't breathe or there's a contusion to the head, then that's serious. But the worst spots to get hit, you have a you have a cup on, you have an athletic supporter, 
so it still hurts, but it's usually the inner thigh. Like, imagine getting hit by a cold hockey puck in October in your thigh. Yep. Yeah. So that's the worst yeah, lot to get hit as an umpire is the thigh. Is there more conditioning for umpires now? Because out of all the, you know, the major sports, you look at the professional umpires and you're like, uh, you know, the out of all of them, you know, ref, like you said, hockey, you got to skate, you got to be in shape. Soccer, you, you run kilometers on the pitch. Uh, you know, basketball up and down the courts. Uh, so there has to be some sort of cardio there. Uh, whereas umpires, a lot of the time they're, you know, stagnant and mm-hmm. the, the, uh, the, uh, the home plate umpire gets the most movement with his arms. <laughs> um, so do you see that there's more conditioning, uh, at least at the start of the season, uh, when you have, you know, maybe um, training camps or something, uh, to try and bring more cardio into uh, umping? Yeah, I'd love to take a moment and just to challenge. I'm not sure what your fan group is or your viewing base, but I'd love for whoever's watching this, the next time they're watching a Major League Baseball game, take a look at the uniform jersey number on the umpires. So typically the higher the number means the less seniority you have because the higher the number means that you're joining a fraternity that already has that number of people in it. So the first Major League umpire grabbed number one. I'm the best. And then there was two. And now, you know, there's umpires, the new umpires, there's triple digits now. So I want to take every, I want everyone to take a moment, their next major league game they watch or replays to check the number of the Jersey on the umpire you're critiquing. And if it's triple digits, they're brand new within the last year or two in the big leagues. And if you want to look at their size, height and weight ratio compared to other older umpires, you're going to see most of them are very, athletically comparable to the athletes that they're officiating. So when it comes to social media and video, you know, you see the overweight umpire that can't move, but you didn't see that overweight umpire when he entered the big leagues 30 years ago, you know, that, that guy has been traveling 30 years, seven months out of the year away from his family, eating in hotels, you know, they might get a good stipend per diem package, but they're probably eating, you know, God forbid you got to eat at a steakhouse five nights a week. God forbid. But horrible. sounds horrible. But, but, you know, 30 years without without maybe proper taking care of your body and, you know, maybe drinking alcohol on the road away from your family, which you're allowed to do as long as it doesn't affect your work. You know, I can see how that could add 40, 50 pounds on a guy in 30 years. Definitely. So with the with the forward progression of medicine and how to protect you know, an employee, which is basically, you know, someone, I don't want to say you outright own them, but it's your product that you're putting out there and the insurance, your insurance is covering their health while they're on the field. You see any umpire with triple digits, they're usually at least six foot and they're ripped and they're ripped and they're fast and they're training. They've been training 12 years because they could have been 22 years old, fresh out of a college athletic program and they aren't continuing their playing career. They go to umpire school because, you know, guys that are really good that don't make it get recruited to be umpires. Believe you know, I wasn't one of them because I didn't make it that high as a player. But when you're the next level to become a major league player and you get hurt, you get recruited as an umpire. And they get sent to umpire school. And they got 10 years where they're chasing big money just like players. You only get money once you make the big leagues. So these new umpires that are coming up, 
to, they've had the last 10 to 12 years to be ready to be on camera to keep their job. So uh, 10 more years, you won't see another overweight umpire at big leagues. That's a fact. 100%. Give it maybe, maybe six. I mean, I, I, right to your point, I think uh, one of the more legendary umpires who most people still like for the most part, Joe West. Oh. You see, you, you see a video of him back from the 70s and early 80s. He wasn't a skinny he guy. Was he was thick. He, he, was, he was thick, but he, but, but, but he has big bones. He, he wasn't a, yeah. he wasn't, like, all due respect, David, he was closer to my body size than yours. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but he wasn't as fat as he was when he ended his career. Well, he, uh, I think, yeah, he, he put on weight as the years went on. And it well, goes right to your point. At least 100 pounds. Uh, you know, he umpired what 3,000 games, 5,000, excuse me, 5,000 more, five, like 52 fit, like I don't even know, yeah, over 5,000. And those are all on the road away from your family, you know, um, probably not eating the best food. <laughs> and you know, you know, especially if, you know, if he's got to travel, you know, if he works a west coast game, then he's got to go get to an east coast game the day later. Well, how about this? You know, baseball players and all professional athletes, even collegiate athletes, even little league players have a home field. Yeah. A professional player travels throughout the, throughout the year, but when they're in their home city, they don't stay in the hotel. They're going home to their wife or their husband. If it's a female professional athlete or if you're gay or straight or whatever in a professional sport, you go home to your partner or, or your animal. Um, as an umpire, you don't go home during your season. You go home. The only time you go home as an umpire is when you're not good enough to get all-star games or playoffs. So if you're trying to be the best, you're aiming to never go home. And that's tough. We, we, we talk, we, we've talked on, on, on this show a few times about mental health and how in today's days in society, it's, it's, it's a big deal and it shouldn't be a big deal. But we talk about mental health, about athletes and what the toll takes on them. You just talked about, you know, if an umpire wants to be the best in his, best in baseball, his goal is to never be home seven, eight months out of the year. They're all divorced, Charles. You all get, <laughs> you get divorced as a, as a professional baseball umpire on the road. If you don't have the highest gift from God or something else keeping your life together, and then that means you need an equally good partner at home. That takes care of the family. Imagine if you have kids like going to well, school. I mean, God. You, and you, you don't you make a million bucks. You're not a professional athlete. You're not making well, a million I mean, bucks. You're making a couple hundred grand maybe. Yeah. But just to talk about what it takes on you. To talk about Because you have a partner at home. You don't yeah. see her as often as, as you probably want to. What, what kind of a mental stress does that take on you X number of weeks and months at a time before you're actually home? getting to spend a, a day or two with her. What, what, what kind of a call does that take on you? You know, we can even go as small as a baseball game doesn't have a time limit, Charles. Yeah, you're right. So, you know, a normal job, your wife might know, hey, my husband gets off work at five. He He's home by six. Not saying I don't trust him or I'm jealous, but if he's not home by seven, he could have been in a car accident. I'm worried. You know, the old school mentality. Something happened. My partner's not home. As yeah. a baseball referee, my game might start at noon and I could get back to the locker room and I could have texts from maybe not even my partner. It could be a friend. Hey, why are you ignoring me? Why aren't you answering your phone? You know, um, mm -hmm. where are you? 
you know, I, I'm on the field. So we can go as little as just from day to day, not knowing when you're going to get off, not knowing if it's going to go extra innings, you know, not knowing if you're going to have a complete jerk who might have had a bad day on his own, take it out on you as an official. And you got to be strong not to take it home because, you know, I I've taken it home before. I'm not proud of it. I'm not proud. You know, I think everyone's taking negative things from work home and umpiring is my job. And so I have to basically be, I'm not going to give myself the notoriety of like a, a homicide detective where you literally have to put your badge in your key holder, wherever you keep your keys at your front door, you drop your badge and you pretend like you don't bring your work home. It's not as serious because I can share some stuff with my partner, but I don't want to let them know I'm being belittled every second of the day. You know, it's not going to make your partner happy that you're getting made fun of or you're getting yelled at every moment. So it's tough, but he reaps the benefits. I'm in Arizona. People always say that it's hot. You know, I, I like to say it's not raining today. It's not snowing. So if I have a I'm wearing a hat, you know, part of my uniform is the hat. So I have a little bit of shade, tiny bit of shade. Um, just got to look at the positives in life. You know, we're all blessed to be. How, how young were you, Charles, when you knew you liked baseball? Were you five? Yeah, I was about five or six years old when I, I discovered my, uh, my love for the sport. Yeah, when you knew you wanted to swing a bat and throw a ball somewhere, yep. like I knew it too. Even though I lived in Canada, I knew I loved the ball and the bat. I knew it. And it's just important to just keep that strive in the game. And we got to remember that it's a game. And if we're making money from this game, dude, we're lucky. We're here. We made it. You're, you're spending your time away from your family to talk about sports that you love. Yep. You know? That's that's worth it all into you. For me, I love the game and I get paid. It's tough, but it's part of the job description you sign up for at the end of the day. Find a new job. So I think we kind of know uh, the answer to this question. But as for you, where do you see yourself? What do you hope the future holds uh, for young David here? Uh, you know, do you have kind of goals set, you know, I want to be potentially at this level by this age or these many games, um, or, you know, what, uh, what, uh, what are your, uh, you know, kind of future ambitions for yourself? Well, um, I'm striving for the best. I'm currently not in professional baseball, so there really is no honest drive to get to major league baseball because there is no direct leap from collegiate to major leagues at this moment. You got to work through your progressions through the minor leagues. Um, so at this moment, dude, I'm shooting for, I want to be a playoff division one umpire. This was my second year as a collegiate umpire at all. Um, and this was my first year in playoffs. So usually second year guys don't get playoffs and my supervisors nominated me for it. And I got both rounds. So I got semi and championship rounds of playoffs so I'm hoping I'm hoping the next year or two I can break into division one baseball and just shoot for the stars. So that, that, that old Casey case on keep your feet on the ground, keep reaching for the stars, right? Eh? Yep. <laughs> well, 
uh, I don't know about you, but uh, I have uh, found so much uh, about uh, the backside of uh, umping out of all of these sports. I want to say it's the, you know, the least I've done. Um, so it's uh, really good to see the insight, uh, you know, definitely going to have to keep an eye on, uh, you know, junior college, which is kind of weird to say for Canadians because we don't quite have junior college, but think of it, uh, think of it as Sejap. Th- exactly. If you uh-huh. are, if you know of Sejap or live near Quebec, you have heard the word Sejap. If you're out here in the West coast of Canada, you have no idea what the hell that means. It's just a bunch of letters, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, go watch uh, Last Chance You Go, uh, you know, those are great Netflix documentaries that kind of bring you into the world of junior college and uh, what that means for the athletes. Uh, so, David, thank you so much for uh, coming on and telling us all about yourself, uh, the career, uh, you know, the other side, uh, you know, it maybe you're done as an athlete or, you know, you weren't athletically inclined to to make it to the top but you can impact the sports uh, another way uh we're definitely going to have you back on and uh is it your off season now or i guess you get a little bit of a break i guess there's no off season for arizona baseball since you can play whenever <laughs> so justin it's going to be technically my off season for college baseball but this will be my regular season in amateur kids baseball to earn my division one job hopefully so we're gonna go back at it every day there you go check he might end up at the little league world series (laughs) maybe not (laughs) (laughs) that's a that could be a hard no right there but uh uh david thank you so much for uh for coming on we'll we'll probably have to have you on uh for uh for our mlb playoff preview uh, definitely to get that uh, insight. I know some of the other uh, uh, hosts on the show would love to chat with you uh, and pick your brain. Uh, but thank you uh, for uh, spending a little bit of time with us. Thank you for sending up the heat. You know, it was getting a little dreary here in Canada, so we needed the sun. And uh, yeah, good uh, good luck with your, uh, your upcoming non-collegiate uh, season. Thank you, Justin. Thank you for Charles for having me. And uh, from one Canadian to another, hope you guys have a good day.